Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Zach. And I'm Seth. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right, we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. Always classy, sometimes, nope, always classic, sometimes classic, classy. Sometimes classy, come on, get used to it. Wow, you're the one that forgot it for like 150 episodes. Maybe I remembered it and it just lost its moment and now its moment is back. Its moment's back. It's in the limelight. You know what I was thinking about? No. Coming up soon, we'll be at PAX. Yes, in a few weeks, actually. And it'll be time for our double feature that our listeners like. And that is our pre-PAX pod and our post-PAX pod. Or as we like to say it in the business, PP, 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 Yes, yes. We, we've got the PP and the um, second PP. No, it's a, it's a triple P. Oh, we've got the two PP. PPPs, and PPPs. once we're done with those PPPs, <laughs> we'll be we'll be moving on to something better. Did we do a pre-pax pod last year? Yeah, I think we didn't do a pre-pax pod because we weren't planning to do a post-pax pod, but then we came up with the idea to record things on the spot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's fair. We always go to PAX. We don't always do an episode about PAX. But it's fun and it's relevant. Yeah, it'll be a good time. We're going to be going with a couple friends of Seth and myself, and we'll be... In fact, going with three Ryans. Three Ryans, one Seth, one Zach, and no questions asked. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we actually, it's, uh, the, the Ryans are our, our bodyguards. We need uh, our entourage. Our producer is not coming, but he will be there. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Arguably, PAX happens in Boston, which is the city X over. Uh, our producer will be in the, like, the region. <laughs> so will the entire population of Boston. <laughs> We'll that's true that's, yes that is true well i mean we might see the producer you know at the bar or something so zach yes seth what have you been recently been playing seth recently i've been playing stormgate stormgate is a game that was in open beta a few days ago as of the recording of this podcast episode but as of the release of this podcast episode it has not been in the open beta for a few weeks it was in an open beta for the steam next fest so uh, a whole bunch of games were being demoed during this time and stormgate was one of them uh, stormgate has been in development for some time it's got a lot of uh, hype up around it it is a RTS game, real-time strategy game, being developed by Frost Giant Studios. Uh, Frost Giant, it was founded by Tim Morton and Tim Campbell, who are veterans of Blizzard, um, who also previously worked on Warcraft 3 and Starcraft 2. So Stormgate is kind of a spiritual successor of sorts to Warcraft 3, Starcraft 2, in terms of its vibe and its gameplay style. Oh, that's fun. Yes, it's a real-time strategy game. Um, that is planned to be free to play. It's going to have a, a campaign mode, a 1v1 mode, and a 3v3 PVE mode. The 3v3 PVE mode is where you have three players versus three AI or like a couple of armies and such. And your job is to stop that AI from doing something. So my friends and I did the 3v3 PVE mode. Um, we were pitted against an AI enemy who was trying to achieve an objective. His objective was he was trying to get convoys past our bases. And um, he was using these convoys to charge an ion cannon that he would then bomb our bases with so the idea was not letting three convoys get past um, while also having to deal with armies and such 
that are attacking you. Now, Stormgate, like Warcraft 3, has a hero system. So uh, you are given a hero for your little encampment, and that hero has assorted abilities and can play kind of almost like you would expect a hero from something like a MOBA to play with. He has a couple of different, you know, hotkey abilities that you can use to attack enemies with. And if he dies, he comes back after X amount of time. Meanwhile, you're also working to build up your base, and there's a tech tree, so you have to upgrade your base as you're building it. Um, there are two playable races currently. There is a human race, um, which are basically just the Terrans from StarCraft, in that they have mechs and space marines. And there's the Infernal, which are kind of like the Zerg, except instead of being from space, they are from hell, because they are literally demons. The Infernal class play as a swarm class, so they you can spawn a whole bunch of the enemies at once, but they are very weak and get wiped out. So the idea is you just have these large armies of like hundreds of little infernal imps coming at you um, that are doing a modicum of damage while they're being wiped out instantly by like the other army. But they can also produce highly in numbers. <laughs> the human class, meanwhile, are more of just kind of your middle ground human class. You know, they build machines, they build spaceships, they build troops, and they shoot things and die. Their characters are a bit more balanced normally. Uh, my friends and I played as the Infernal. Uh, we had a good time. The Infernal have some fun quirks about them, uh, such as when you build like structures that are supposed to be like your farms, the farms will summon what are called fell hogs, and fell hogs will guard your base, but you can't control them. They just act as like stationary guards who hang around your base. Um, fell hogs are also what you can use to heal your characters because your characters will eat them. <laughs> so you can like have one of your characters just consume a, a fell hog and it will gain some health back. The Infernal also have uh, a corruption thing. So whenever they build a building, it will corrupt the ground around it. You don't need to build on corruption, at least as of the beta, but having things in corruption will give your characters a boost in uh, certain specs. So you can heal your characters as well as provide them with like speed boosts and attack boosts if you have corruption around you. So that was cool. And we, we had a good time and we, we fought off the bad guy and we won. It took us a while, but we did it. I am looking forward to seeing what Stormgate has to offer in the future. Uh, I think there is a plan to incorporate some more races into the game. I'm hoping for like a Protoss style of race and uh, it would be cool to see if they maybe put in like an orc uh, style to like balance out the humans but um, yeah so far it's been fun it does have some technical issues one was that one of my friends couldn't progress past the tutorial uh, so when he started the game the tutorial came up and no matter what he did the tutorial would not close uh, so we had to restart the game a couple of times but it was in beta so you know uh, you're kind of coming to expect these technical issues when you're going through beta but yeah I'm looking forward to the full game hopefully it should be a good time currently there's no planned release date though I think it's supposed to be due out this year so, th so that's what I've been playing what about you what have you been recently playing uh recently i've been playing a, a game that was also part of the next fest uh, i was playing the demo for news tower which is being developed by sparrow knight and was actually put into early access on 213 where you develop your uh newspaper and you become a new york's media mogul it's a tycoon style build up type game where you manage everything that goes on in your print shop from your telegraph office to figure out where news is all the way down to the printer to print the newspaper. Uh, the game takes place right around the 30s uh, where newspapers are relevant, which arguably... I feel like they can always be relevant. News Tower is a fun game where you get to send your reporters out, get some news, 
and then lay out your newspaper in a way that makes it uh, enticing for people to buy. Because at the end of the day, still capitalism. So it's kind of cool. You get to decide what stories are above the fold or below the fold. The fold being where the newspaper gets folded. Important stories go on above the fold so that people see it first. But yeah, I, I think it's fun. It was it got a little um, a lot of stuff going on at, all at once, and I got a little overwhelmed. Uh, there was a lot of like getting people over here, but they do have a demo, and I think the demo is still available, so you can check it out. I enjoyed it. I liked and also was stressed by the timelines because every week starts up with Monday, and you have to get everything ready to go by Sunday because that's when the paper prints. I called my paper the Daily Press, which is fun because we only press on Sunday, so I feel like we're not so daily as a press. Also, <laughs> I feel like if I lived in the 1930s and there was a newspaper called the Daily Press and they only printed on Sunday, I wouldn't trust them. So yeah, News Tower, uh, developed by Sparrow Knight. Uh, maybe they'll be at PAX. We'll have to find out. Well, to get into today's episode, we're going to be talking about a oddity in Nintendo's history. I don't think we've ever alluded to this before, but we're talking about the Nintendo IQ, which is uh, a kind of a, a thing that some people are aware of and some people aren't aware of, so we're going to make you aware of it. Uh, as many of our listeners and followers on social media are aware, I'm very into bootleg and unlicensed media. Uh, for those who aren't aware, you are now. The thing that fascinates me so much about the world of piracy when it comes to video games is that it feels like a glimpse of a realm that Seth and I simply don't live in. Seth and I both grew up in the United States, and we had easy access to consoles like the Sega Genesis, Nintendo Entertainment System, Super Nintendo, and so on. While we didn't necessarily own all these consoles as kids, we did have the ability to just go to the store and buy one if we had the money and desire to. For most of our listeners in the United States and Western Europe, this holds true. However, for people in places like Russia, China, Eastern Europe, Africa, and South America, it was a little more difficult. As we've talked about in the past, countries like Russia, Brazil, and China often had restrictions on imports, which made it virtually impossible for companies like Nintendo or Sega to penetrate the market effectively. In some places like Brazil, they were able to circumvent restrictions by establishing close relationships with corporations within that country. For example, Sega formed a relationship with Tectoy to distribute the Master System in Genesis, as well as games for those. Other places had to resort to piracy to meet the needs of consumers who wanted these consoles. So, just to kind of give you an idea about why piracy exists, if you can't get something in a country, you pirate it. So one company, TXC Corporation, did just this in Taiwan. They created their own version of the Nintendo Famicom and they dubbed it the Microgenius. The Microgenius was what people in the online spheres call a Famiclone, which is a portmanteau of Famicom and clone. TXC would also extend outside of Taiwan after they formed deals with companies like Stiepler in Russia to rebrand the Microgenius as the Dendi and Bob Mark International in Poland to rebrand the system as the Pegasus. The Dendi and Pegasus machines would also equally spread far and wide. The Dendi quickly became one of the best-selling consoles in Russia and Eastern Europe, and the Pegasus found its way to parts of the Middle East, South America, Indonesia, and Greece. Around 1989, an arcade company called Miwa Electronics Factory, located in Zhongshan, China, began to produce their own line of Famiclones. This was done largely to deal with their own financial struggles. The company had only around 3,000 yuan and reportedly owed upward to 2 million yuan. And this was back in the, the 80s, so the, uh, the, the conversion rate was a little different back then, but today 3,000 yuan is about $400. That was all that the company had when they decided to make their first Famiclone, so they really needed some money. Their director, Duan Yongping, hoped to capitalize on the success of the home video game market to bring about an influx of cash to the company. Their first 
first model was given the name Zhao Bai Wang, literally translating to Little Emperor, and it was sold at a competitive price to beat out more expensive Nintendo consoles that were brought in through importers. As the console was cheaper, it was soon popular, and the Xiao Bang Wan, called Subor in the West, became the brand associated with home video games in China. Enter the 1990s. Subor would begin to release versions of their Famiclones with keyboards as a way of selling the systems as educational devices. This was done to appeal to parents who wanted to buy their children something educational, and the reworked machine was called the Chinese English Learning Machine. The system would still be able to play Famiclones games, but it was also bundled with its own line of educational software. Jackie Chan would go on to be the spokesperson for the company at this time, often appearing in advertisements holding the systems, hopefully showing them how well they hold up to being punched. Subor was a powerhouse, but were heavily hit in the 2000s when the CCP, which is the Chinese Communist Party, passed a law that banned home video game consoles in China. The ban was done because the Chinese government's belief was that video games were addicting. Hmm maybe, and they were damaging the youth of the country. Maybe. Uh, the ban, however, was very specific to video game consoles, which means that loopholes would be, be able to be found. And everybody loves a good loophole. During the period of the ban, which lasts all the way to 2015, China saw a rise in computer games, MMOs, and mobile games, because those weren't video game consoles. Uh, another thing that became popular were plug-and-play systems. A plug-and-play system, or sometimes called TV game systems, were already around in the market. But as things like system-on-a-chip hardware became cheaper and cheaper, and the ban on consoles was in effect, there was a boom in the development of cheap devices that could simply be plugged into your TV. That would offer a selection of games to play, because it was not a home console. It was a TV thing as a TV accessory. Yeah. Because whenever there's money to be made, loopholes will be easily found. It was at this time that Nintendo, a creator of home consoles, decided that this time in Chinese history is the perfect opportunity to scoop up the Chinese gaming market in their own way. In 2002, after seeing how the pirate market flourished, Nintendo teamed up with a Taiwanese developer named Wei Yen and began to work on their own plug-and-play device, the IQ Player. Yen had previously been the senior vice president of Silicon Graphics, president of MIPS Technologies, and he was also involved in the development of OpenGL. So his experience with this technology would become very important Nintendo because they would need to miniaturize their N64 and make it not a console but also a console. Yen and Nintendo would create a company called IQ and would get to work on creating the IQ player. The intention originally was that the device would be able to play NES, SNES, and N64 games but Nintendo would scrap this and the final product would only play N64 titles. Now, the IQ player boasts 16 megabytes of RAM and ADPCM64 sound chip, USB support to connect to IQ at home, which was a web service that would provide users the ability to download games to the console, and R4300i 64-bit CPU that clocked in at just over 140 megahertz, and it was also bundled with Dr. Mario 64 as a pack-in game. And to describe what the IQ looks like, it kind of looks like a Dreamcast controller, which is 
is weird because Dreamcast was Sega, but it does kind of look like this weird thick controller that has the kind of layout of a game controller, almost like the GameCube controllers where it has a analog stick and a D-pad on one side, your uh, face buttons on the other side, so your A, B, X, Y, Z stuff on the other side, and then a start button that had some trigger buttons and it had a little card slot at the bottom of it and you could plug in the wires to the top. So you plug in your AV cables, the power source, or batteries. Because remember, it wasn't a home console. It was a TV accessory. That's right. It's a TV game system, not a console. A TV game system, not a console. The IQ player would be announced at the Tokyo Game Show in 2003, which I imagine was a wild time for Nintendo because they were probably like, this is the thing that we're going to use to penetrate the Chinese game market. And everyone's like, very cool. I just find it very interesting that they announced it at the Tokyo Game Show in 2003 because yeah, like- They're not going to announce it in China. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Following this, it would be released in China in November of the same year. And the Chinese name for the system is Shen Yuji, which translates to God Gaming Machine. The IQ player would be able to play specific versions of N64 games. As the N64 was more robust than the IQ itself, the games did have to be reworked slightly to run on the hardware. Other changes would have to be made to support the Chinese language, with text being translated to simplified Chinese and some games featuring audio in Mandarin. The games would also be stored rather uniquely on specialized cards. In in order to get a game, you would actually have to go to a store that had a dedicated IQ Depot, plug in the memory card, download the game, and then you could play it on your system at home. And if you wanted to change games, you would have to go back to the Depot. Nintendo, though, would create the IQ at home to allow players to connect at home and go onto an online marketplace and download the games. You wouldn't download a car. In total, there were 14 games available from 2003 until 2006. Wave Race 64, Star Fox 64, Dr. Mario 64, Super Mario 64, The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, Mario Kart 64, F-Zero X, Yoshi's Story, Paper Mario, Sin and Punishment, Excite Bike 64, Custom Robo, and Animal Crossing. There were also plans to release Majora's Mask, with it being advertised on the back of the box for the system. System, but it would be canceled. Sin and Punishment? Was that a shooter? Yeah, it's a, a Japanese exclusive game. Oh, I was like, all those games are games that I would expect to be released by Nintendo. That's Sin and Punishment. <laughs> yeah, Sin and Punishment's a rail shooter. So it's like Pokemon Snap, but with guns. Isn't that just Power World? That's true. Now, in 2004, Nintendo also released the IQ GBA and the IQ GBA SP. In fun fact, in 2003, Nintendo released the Game Boy SP. <laughs> yeah. In total, there were eight games that were translated into Chinese for the IQ GBA, they would also release a version of the GBA Micro with the IQ branding. Uh, Wario Land 4, Super Mario Advance, Metroid Zero Mission, uh, WarriorWare Incorporated Mega Micro Games, Metro Fusion, Yoshi Island Super Mario World, and F-Zero Maximum Velocity would all be games that would end up on the IQ GBA. Now, more games were planned for the GBA release, but Nintendo noticed that they were being struck by piracy of their GBA titles and decided to cancel the release of later games because if pirates were taking it then nobody can have it unlike the iq player the iq gba is basically just a normal version of the gba that they put iq on it because there was no laws against sending handhelds to china uh, another difference between the iq player and the iq gba system was that you could buy games for the gba at a retail store unlike a specialized depot, which meant that anyone could easily pirate a G game for the GBA and sell it because you could just buy it from a retail store. Nintendo would also put out an IQ DS in 2005, a DS Lite in 2006, a DSi in 2009, 
and a 3DS XL in 2012. The IQ DS line, like the GBA line, are basically just rebranded versions of the DS with one big exception. They were region locked. In fact, the IQ DS is the only DS that is region locked, and IQ games cannot be played on non-IQ DSs, and vice versa. I don't think you can play non-IQ games on IQ DSs. Nintendo, likely seeing the problems with their Game Boy Advance IQ, did this to further attempt to squash piracy. Because uh, it's slightly harder to pirate things when things are region locked. You just have to try harder. Yeah. Or go to that right to go to the right region. That's how I always thought. That's how you got out through region locked. You'll just cross the border and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm out of it. It works all of a sudden. The IQ 3DS XL was also unique in that it had no connection to the Nintendo eShop and you could not transfer your save data from the IQ DSi to the 3DS XL. It did have its own version of a shop, I'm pretty sure that you could access, but there weren't many games released for the IQ 3DS XL. In fact, only two games were released for it. They weren't even released as cartridges. They were pre-bundled with the system pre-installed. That was Super Mario 3D Land and Mario Kart 7. However, the IQ 3DS XL was actually compatible with a select number of games that were produced by Nintendo for the Hong Kong and Taiwanese market. Because Nintendo was producing stuff for those markets, because those markets didn't restrict them. (laughs) There were also plans to bring the Wii to China under the IQ brand. But Nintendo found it hard to find a way to get the system approved under the guidelines of the console ban. It's a little harder to say that the Wii's not a console when it does everything a console does. I'm sure they tried their darndest though because they knew that Wii would have been a success. Interestingly enough though, a video was posted by a Twitter user at Chinese Nintendo in January of 2024 that shows a smart interactive emotion catharsis device purchased by a middle school in China. When the video looks closer at this smart interactive emotion catharsis device, it's actually just a Wii in a specialized housing. It's literally a Wii inside of a kiosk. However, when they boot the Wii, it features the IQ logo on the health warning advisory. Uh, Further tweets from the account suggest that the IQ logo has been inside Wii software this whole time. Like, so your Wii that you might have in your living room right now, deep in its data, has the IQ logo somewhere in it. And it's possible that the modded systems were sold in China on kind of a gray market and they possibly had the IQ logo put into them. Which Nintendo definitely didn't facilitate. Let me tell you, this whole thing with the smart interactive emotion catharsis device is wild. The middle school purchased this thing for like tens of thousands of yuan. Like I think it was like 40,000 yuan and found out it's literally just a Wii inside of a housing and they got mad and they contacted the company and the company said, well, it is a catharsis device because you can play things on it and it will make you feel better. And then the company threatened to sue the school for libel or something. (laughs) Like it's ridiculous. Well, Seth, why don't you tell us how the IQ itself did? Well, the IQ player was uh, was a failure. Uh, pirates had a stronghold over the market, and as Nintendo learned when they released the IQ GBA, they were quick to adapt. The IQ player itself would end up only selling between 8,000 to 12,000 units in total. It's pretty low for a market that consists of 1 billion people. <laughs> yeah, literally the, what, second most populated country in the entire world? correct. Per one source, the IQ Historia website, the IQ player itself could not make up the cost of developing the system and was unable to even to break even. The IQ GBA series, however, did a bit better with sales of upwards of 500,000 total units sold. The IQ DS series also sold well with around 300,000 units selling, but the revenue would still not be anywhere near online games like World of Warcraft, which made upwards of 1 billion yuan in 2007, which equates to 
139 million USD. The IQ Historia site also makes note that one of the things that hindered success of the IQ brand as a whole was that games require government approval before release. As China has historically been fairly strict on certain items of censorship, each game would need to be reviewed and approved for content. The other issue was that when the IQGBA hit the market, pirates were able to crack the game and flashcards began to become prevalent to allow people to download their own ROMs and then play them on the system. So if you could somehow get past firewalls on the internet, or if you knew somebody who could get past firewalls on the internet, you could get a game and get it onto a cart and you could play whatever game you wanted to play. Yeah. And I imagine anyone that's faced with that strict of government censorship, I imagine your population's pretty good at getting it around. <laughs> oh yeah. And one thing that's important to note, Nintendo had to go through government censorship and go through government approval. Pirates you know who don't. doesn't? Oh, yeah. <laughs> pirates don't. And pirates often uh, figure out how to get through it without any issues. Now, the IQ player in recent years has actually had some resurging interest, um, largely in the speedrunning community, because games like Super Mario 64 and Ocarina of Time can be played slightly faster due to a faster speed of the text and the faster speed in loading. These games were technically modified. So when you do an IQ run of like Super Mario 64, or Ocarina of Time, they, it does have to be clarified as an IQ run, but it has been interesting to see people try to incorporate strats from like IQ runs of Super Mario 64 into normal Super Mario 64 um, and just see the differences. Uh, but for a while, I think the fastest time was on IQ SM64 before someone got it done in uh, the, the normal version. In 2015, China would go on to overturn the home console ban and Nintendo was able to finally enter the market a bit more formally when they released the Nintendo Switch in 2019 with the help of the Chinese company Tencent. The same company that brings us Epic. Yes, good old Tencent. Wei Yen, who helped Nintendo develop the IQ, would go on to found the company iGware and provide cloud services to companies like Nintendo. iGware would get acquired by Acer in 2011, be renamed to Acer Cloud, and this acquisition left Yen as the head of the company and also made him the second largest shareholder of Acer, with the first being Acer's founder. So that's just a fun little fun fact about where Wei Yen's doing today. Another on where are they today I just wanted to quickly add was we talked about Subor very briefly to kind of lead us into the whole piracy thing. Um, Subor's founder, Duan Yongping is currently a multi-billionaire and is like one of the richest people in China. Nice. When you have something that people want they will pay for it. The IQ is, I think, a very fascinating piece of Nintendo's history, and it's kind of evident that Nintendo was very well aware of how pirates were impacting them in these regions that they simply could not tap. And we talked about that. When we talked about the Master System, we talked about how well the Master System did in Brazil, because Nintendo got to Brazil so very late in the stage of, of like, gaming. I mean, Nintendo got to Brazil in, like, the 90s, while Sega had been in Brazil since the 80s. And it, it's really interesting to kind of see this world where video game markets are so much more competitive and restrictive versus the world that Seth and I grew up in. So that's, uh, you know, I think it's interesting to learn about the IQ and in kind of the attempt Nintendo made to get a little bit of extra money out of out of their whole their whole shtick. 
Yeah. To get into our retro rewinds, Seth had me play Rap Jam Volume 1 for the Super Nintendo. Rap Jam was created by a 64WD creation and published by Motown Games. Uh, This would be the second and last game published by Motown Games, who also published the SNES adaptation of the movie Bebe's Kids, which is also a bad game. Rap Jam is a 1995 basketball game that features real-life rappers as playable characters. This includes uh, Public Enemy, Queen Latifah, Naughty by Nature, House of Pain, Coolio, LL Cool J, Warren G, and Yo-Yo. It is not a good basketball game. It's actually one of the worst basketball games I've played, period. It kind of plays like NBA Jam, but when I say kind of plays like NBA Jam, it's kind of like if you told someone how NBA Jam played, and then you asked them to recreate it from memory. (laughs) It's just like, it is not a good time. It, It suffers from a lot of problems just in terms of gameplay. For one thing, sometimes characters just jump really high i was like shooting a ball from like the three-point line and it was really high in the air and someone went from the ground all the way up and they caught it maybe it was the shoes it might have been the shoes it is interesting though in rap jam there are no foul calls and you can also fight other players um there's a fisticuffs thing that can happen um because it is supposed to be kind of like a a street basketball game as opposed to so there's no like refs there's no refs yeah when i was playing my match i think i was playing as ll cool j um and uh it was just me and the other player do you know who would be a good secret character bill clinton uh no because he's a secret character at nba jam weird al would be a good secret character would be great in in rap jam weird al as coolio overall rap jam volume one does not hold up i'm not surprised that there was no volume two and next week seth you can play romance of the three kingdoms for the nes nice last week zach had me play contra force released by konami for the nintendo entertainment system in 1992 it's a spin-off of the contra series and is a running gun game it plays very similar to the other contra games on the nes except this time you have the option of choosing from four different guys. There's uh, Burns, he's the leader. There's Smith, who is the sniper. There's Iron, the heavy weapons expert. And Beans, the demolition expert. Or as I like to say, the pie thrower. Because one of his demo looks like a pie. I really enjoyed the different characters from the game and selecting different characters versus like in some Contras where you just drop into the game and you're just shooting. I like selecting somebody different and being able to change how the game plays. The game, however, does experience significant slowdown, uh, which makes the game a bit more tough because uh, slowdown just messes things up. And the game's going to be Nintendo hard already. So significant slowdown equals a game that if you like old school Contras, games then it holds up but it's definitely a weak showing in the series i thought it was fine but there you know the slowdowns were just really annoying i did really like being able to play as like smith next week zach you could play gary's kitchen super battle tank war in the gulf gary kitchens super battle gary's tank? gary's kitchens super battle tank war in the gulf Okay, sure. But it's it is called Gary Kitchen's Super Battle Tank War in the Gulf. Not Gary's Kitchen. <laughs> it's not Gary's Kitchen. <laughs> no, yes, sorry. Gary Kitchen's Super Battle Tank War in the Gulf. That sounds great. Anyway, that will do it for today's episode. If anyone has any thoughts about the IQ, be sure to reach out to us at ClassicGamingBrothers at gmail.com. We're available on Facebook, Classic Gaming Brothers, Instagram, Classic Gaming Brothers, XCG Brothers Pod, Blue Sky CG Brothers Pod, and Threads, Classic Gaming Brothers. We are available to be listened to wherever podcasts can be found, be it Podbean or iHeartRadio or iTunes. We're also available on ClassicGamingBrothers.com. That's our website. 
And if you go there, we'll be happy. Now, before we do our final little thing, if you're at PAX East and you see two brothers walking around, one of whom has a, a beard or a goatee, I don't know what I'm going to look like in a month. Both of them wearing glasses, both of them wearing matching clothes, one or two of them wearing a hat, both of them looking like they don't want to talk to you. Come up and say hi, because we might have a prize for you. It could be junk for my desk. It could be. That being said, Seth, is there anything else I'm forgetting? Don't play games like my brother. And don't play games like my brother. I've been Seth. And I've been Zach. And we've been the classic gaming brothers. That. That.